loyalty is a funny thing, right? We use that word for really big concepts, like someone's loyalty, a character quality, a virtue. But we show loyalty to all kinds of things. So lots of folks have sports loyalties. When I was in high school and I just moved to Ohio, I didn't fully appreciate how those loyalties work. And so I, I bought a winter hat that I thought looked really cool, like it was bright yellow and had this big capital M on front. And when I wore it, I, I learned all about the rich heritage of the Ohio State-Michigan rivalry. It's a lesson. Some people are deeply loyal to celebrities, right? They'll buy every album that a musician puts out or watch every movie an actor is in. They watch them every time they're interviewed. They defend them if anyone speaks ill of them. You can think of this sort of thing, right? We're not gonna talk about political loyalties for now, but you know, right? There's brand loyalty, right? That's a fancy way of saying that marketing departments have successfully convinced you that you need to buy their products, right? Uh, and we're all like, that's not me. Well, do you have an Apple or an Android phone? And would you buy the other one next time you need a phone? No. Who would have thought, right? No. Who would have thought you could have such strong opinions on smartphones and computers? Maybe a positive example, dogs. Dogs are loyal. We don't deserve dogs. They're so wonderful. My dog, Sophie, wants nothing more than to play and hang out with me and be immediately next to me as often as possible. She would do anything for me. Some people have emotional support animals. I am Sophie's emotional support human. <laughs> That's how much she loves me. Because loyalty is the outward manifestation of what our hearts desire. It's a commitment to direct our lives towards something. And that thing takes priority. It shapes and determines our choices and our decisions. Our first and primary loyalty, I hope, is towards God. But that loyalty has to look a lot more than just saying, I'm a Christian. I think our texts this morning tell us some things about what it looks like to have a God-first mindset. And as I was preparing the sermon, two things kind of emerged out. That to put God first means that we give him our allegiance and then our obedience. Let me, let me illustrate the distinction between those two. So every priest or deacon serves under a bishop. And to serve under that bishop means that every single one of us have signed and taken what is called the oath of canonical obedience. We take this oath at our ordinations and then we sign often two copies of this oath one to go in the diocesan office and one for us to just keep for ourselves uh, in our own paperwork to remind us that we've agreed to obey the bishop and all of their successors in all things lawful and honest. I have had a bishop invoke his authority in my life, making a demand of me that I was not particularly interested in following. It, it wasn't any significant moral failing, this isn't a confession or anything, but there were policies for the diocese that he insisted that I follow that I was not particularly interested in following. I wasn't happy about it, and in our phone conversation, this was very clear, but that didn't matter, and he didn't really care. <laughs> he needed me to fall in line. I was faithful to my oath, and he had my obedience, but what he didn't have in that moment was my allegiance, right? I was gonna follow through because my bishop told me to, but my heart was not invested in the thing he asked me to do. This is the kind of problem that Malachi's addressing in our Old Testament reading. To kind of set the stage a bit, Malachi's writing to post-exile second temple people. That is, they're people who have returned from Babylon, they've rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem, and they're trying to figure out what it means to live again in their own land under the law. 
And if you read Ezra and Nehemiah and the other post-exile prophets, it was a bit of a rocky re-entry. And if we go just a few verses earlier from our passage, just a chapter earlier, there are a host of sins that plagued this nation. Uh, sorcerers, adulterers, liars, those who oppressed workers in their wages, those who oppressed the widow and orphan, those who cast out immigrants. It was a mess. And as we heard this morning, the people are giving less than a full tithe. The tithe was giving 10% of your goods to the temple. This is important because the tithes supported the Levites, right? The Levites are one twelfth of the population. And if you work out the math, right, if all 11 tribes give 10%, the Levites make about 10% more than the average tribe, but that would be used to both sustain themselves and conduct the religious life of the temple. So if the people give less than a full tithe, they're depriving the temple operations of what they need to survive. So why were they holding back? Well, we immediately think greed, but it's more than that. We heard it a little bit in the few verse introduction, but we hear it again a few verses later. How have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve the Lord. What do we profit by keeping his command or by going about as mourners before the Lord of hosts? We count the arrogant happy. Evildoers not only prosper, but when they put God to the test, they escape. In other words, obeying God doesn't pay out for us. It doesn't profit us anything. They were looking for a return on their investment. And because they didn't really see that giving the tithe in particular or being faithful in general was worth it, they held a little bit back because their allegiance was primarily to themselves. Serving God was only worth it if they came out ahead. Malachi calls them children of Jacob because if you read Genesis, you'll find that Jacob is constantly trying to game the system, right? He's looking for short-term benefits, scheming and pulling tricks to try and get what he wanted from his brother Esau and from his father Isaac. Now, maybe much to the chagrin of our vestry, I'm actually going to skip over any commentary about whether or not your giving has to be at least 10%. I'm very sorry for missing this opportunity. I, I think it's a perfectly good benchmark to use, right? If you want to use 10% as your benchmark for giving, do so. But we're talking this morning about allegiance. You can give a tithe in the name of obedience, but remain defiant. Because more important than the dollar amount that you give or the percentage or whether it's on the net or the gross, all these things, that's fine. But it's more important about the manner in which you give. Paul says we ought to decide what we're going to give and do so cheerfully. Generosity is good, and to give generously, even to give extravagantly, is to model yourself after the God who loves and gives extravagantly. But Malachi's audience thought about the tithe in terms of how it benefited them. Instead of giving because they were showing with their resources that they were allegiant to the God who loved them and was the source of their provision. Half obedience or half-hearted obedience isn't what God wants. You can praise him with your lips and still have your hearts far from him. To be clear, I'm not talking about doubt or struggling in your faith, right? The hard part about preaching a sermon that involves obedience is that some people need a real kick in the pants. <laughs> some people have been trying their best and are, are born down. They're bogged down and they're hurting and they're wondering, God, why can't I do anything right? And sometimes both people need both at the same time, right? So if you find yourself in that latter category, remember that God consistently looks with compassion on those who are putting in the effort but fall short. A bruised reed he will not break. God loves those 
who are trying their best. This is about an intentional choice, or maybe a choice out of, out of ignorance that you refuse to address, to keep parts of you back. For Malachi's audience, it meant giving less than the tithe, but for us, it means choosing to leave parts of our lives untouched by God, choosing to only have one foot in, hedging our bets, following God if we have a clear sense of the payout at the end, but deciding to live however we want in other cases. See, this problem of full allegiance is actually at the forefront and at the heart of our gospel reading today. Now, whenever we read the New Testament, there are two really important contexts to keep in mind. There's the Old Testament history, right? The foundation of God's people, how they got to where they are in the Gospels. But the other setting is the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire casts a huge shadow over everything we read when we read the New Testament. Their iron-fisted rule over Israel and the entire region is a thing that we don't think about, but they were constantly thinking about, or at least they were constantly aware of. So with that in mind, Matthew says that the Pharisees team up with the Herodians to try and trap Jesus. Now, you're probably pretty familiar with the Pharisees. They're the part of Judean society who focused on strict obedience in order to appeal to God to bring about an end to the oppression. They figured, we're under oppression from the Romans. What we need to do is totally be obedient and fall in line, and then God will rescue us. So compromise with the pagan Romans would have been unthinkable to them. The Herodians, on the other hand, were those allied with Herod, who notably was a puppet ruler. Herod was a lapdog of the Roman Empire. He's the very epitome of compromise, providing stability to the Romans in exchange for a little bit of power. So these are very unlikely allies. And both of them are different from the Zealots. The Zealots are those who are trying to stir up armed rebellion against Roman, Rome to purge them from the land, right? So there are three different and kind of mutually exclusive approaches to the Roman oppression. So the Herodians and the Pharisees come up and they say, we know you're sincere. You teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You show deference to no one. You show no partiality. In other words, Jesus, we know you're not scared of the Romans. We know that you don't show them special deference. We know you're going to speak the truth. What do you think about paying the tax? We have to appreciate that the hatred of the temple tax is not like our hatred of taxes as much as we might hate them. It's not even like a colonial American hatred of taxes, right? Because national and religious identity aren't separate for the Judeans. And this tax offended them on both fronts. It supported this pagan nation that ruled over them, only allowed them to worship as long as it never threatened the claims of their dominance. And to add another layer of dramatic tension, what we read takes place after Palm Sunday. So when they're having this conversation, Jesus has already walked into Jerusalem as a king with shouts of Hosanna to the son of David. Any respectable kingdom movement would refuse to pay the tax. That was like the first step in your defiance of Rome. This had happened a lot of times before. Jesus wasn't the first person to come up against Rome. He was not the first person to die on a cross. In Galilee, when he was a child, there was a kingdom movement crushed by the Romans. And so Jesus grew up as a child in the shadow of bodies hung on crosses as a warning to would-be messiahs. So this question that they bring forward is meant to either nail Jesus down as a zealot and get him crushed by the Romans, or force his hand to be a sympathizer, a compromiser, and scatter his followers. 
slam dunk. We got him. We're set. Jesus is no longer going to be a big deal. But he defies their question. He starts by asking them to show him a coin. Now, on that coin, there would have been two things. One is the image of the emperor. This alone is a violation of the second commandment, not to make yourself an idol or a graven image. And underneath it, there was an inscription, son of Augustus, high priest. After many of the Caesars died, their successors said, that guy was divine, which makes the new Caesar the son of God. The coin is a blasphemous item, and handling it would have been to violate the very standards the Pharisees held so dear. So that's why Jesus calls them hypocrites. You hypocrites, you're handling this very blasphemous money. So in Jesus' answer, he calls them out on two fronts. The first is that he challenges their allegiance problem. He condemns their compromise with the paganism of the Romans. And when he says, give to the Caesar the things that are Caesar's, it's like saying, you better give that blasphemous coin back to the one who made it. You toss that back to that pagan. Give to God the things that are God's means that we owe God our total allegiance. We owe God the highest place on our ladder of priorities. There's no room for us to say that we love God, but then give our higher allegiance to anything. Not money, not power, not country, not self, not friends, not families, not neighbors. These all can be good things that compete with our primary allegiance. Don't confuse them. Don't allow good things to replace the best thing in your life. I'll get particular. I, I know that some of you really wish you heard more politics from this pulpit. Or at least, I know you wish you heard your pastor speak clearly about how we ought to vote this November, maybe next November, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. To be sure, voting is important. <laughs> it is good. Election day is coming. You have decisions to make. After all, even after Jesus gave, him, gave these people the response, his listeners still had to decide whether or not they were going to pay the temple tax. The tax collector was going to come around again. And to be clear, I don't think faith and politics are unrelated. In fact, I have very strong opinions about how they relate. I will go into the voter's booth in November after having prayerfully considered the issues, informing myself as much as I'm able, and trying to, to vote in a way that loves my neighbor and loves God. And I hope that you all do as well. The gospel is, in fact, very political, because when we say Jesus is Lord, we are asserting that Caesar and anyone else who tries to usurp our allegiance is not Lord. Jesus is Lord is a contradictory statement. Amen. But this is exactly why we don't preach partisan politics from this pulpit. It's not because the clergy are trying to be evasive or because we lack the courage to speak our convictions, but because we want to get to the heart of the matter I don't want you just to vote a certain way. I want you to be fully allegiant to Jesus as Lord. I want your heart, your soul, your whole self to be dedicated to him, to be dedicated to the project of making God's kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Your pastors want you to seek first the kingdom of God and keep your eyes on him. And we can discuss the temporary rulers of this world another time and in another place. But right now I'm standing in a pulpit in an embassy of the kingdom of God, not in a church on American soil. Let's keep our eyes on God. This leads me to my next point. Once we give our proper allegiance to God, we let that allegiance define what our obedience looks like. So this morning in our weekly prayer, the collect, we said, set us free loving Father from the bondage of our sins 
And in your mercy and goodness, give us the liberty of that abundant life, which you have made known to us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. That last part is key, which you have made known to us in Jesus Christ. It isn't abundant life in general that we are offered. It's not liberty. We're Americans. We hear liberty and we think Thomas Jefferson, right? The, try and take off your American ears and think about liberty the way God talks about it, the way the Bible talks about it. Think about liberty as it's shown to us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Our allegiance and our zeal for God has to be directed into walking the way that Jesus walked, the truly abundant life that Jesus lived. And if we want an example of what this obedience looks like, we get a little snapshot in this introduction of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. So he's saying to the Thessalonians, you guys are great. He's commending the faith that he's seen in these young Christians. They may have only been Christians for a few months at this point. It's commendable because these aren't these aren't Jews who had the context of the Old Testament to understand Jesus. These were Greeks who presumably had been living a typical life worshiping the gods of Roman Greece. These, these idols, these household gods, were things that you would make offerings to to have life go the way you want it. So if you wanted safe travel or abundant crops or success in business, you would just go make offerings to whatever god you think would give you the results but the Thessalonians had abandoned a religion of what do I get out of this to a faith that led them directly into persecution and hardship. Roman paganism was social, not just religious. And so abandoning the gods of Rome was to put yourself at odds with Roman culture and society. And despite that, Paul celebrates their growing in faith and hope and love in such a way that word has gone out to the whole region. These Thessalonians, this little church and Thessalonica have abandoned the gods of Rome. They've totally changed their priorities to follow this crucified Jewish Messiah. Paul even makes a little dig at the claims of Rome, right, by saying they serve a living God as opposed to the dead Caesars. The obedience that comes from a rightly ordered allegiance to God is one that doesn't look like Jacob trying to game the system, trying to wrestle for short-term gains. It doesn't ask is following Jesus really effective and efficient? It keeps its eyes fixed on Jesus and perseveres in the face of oppression. It perseveres in the face of persecution, continuing to follow Jesus. And this is the next way that Jesus defies the question put in front of him by the Pharisees. Remember, they're asking Jesus to pick a side. You came in as a triumphant king. Are, they're calling you a Messiah. Are you another temple cleanser from Galilee? Are you going to rise up to confront the Romans? Or are you going to be a sympathizer and a compromiser? Jesus en ended up being neither, but something completely different. <laughs> now, Jesus was a revolutionary, and the claims we make about Jesus are in direct confrontation with the claims that Caesars would make. And yet his answer leaves room for someone to continue to faithfully pay the temple tax. And this posture is consistent through his whole ministry, right? Right at the very beginning, he preaches the Sermon on the Mount, which rules out violent revolution. He told his disciples to turn the other cheek, not to pay back with vengeance. He says that when an occupying Roman soldier makes you carry his armor for one mile, you should walk one more, going the extra mile. <laughs> going the extra mile isn't like, we provide great customer service, or I worked really hard for my boss. <laughs> Going the extra mile is when an impress, oppressive soldier compels you and forces you to do work for him against your will, you offer double. In the very next chapter after the Sermon on the Mount, 
Jesus heals a centurion servant. And then he says that there's no one in Israel with this kind of faith as the occupying oppressor. Imagine that context and imagine how that would confront people in their relationship to Rome. Jesus' disciples would reiterate this kind of teaching. Paul tells the church of Rome to be subject to governing authorities, telling them to pay their taxes. Peter would simply tell his listeners to honor the emperor. This is all right in the midst of persecution. Christians are not exactly well-loved in the Roman Empire, but they loved the Roman Empire nonetheless. The obedience we show to God can't be on our own terms. It has to flow from the allegiance, allegiance we show to him as God who has revealed himself in Jesus. Actually, the book of Revelation gives us a lot of encouragement in this direction. So much of the imagery of the book from the dragon to Babylon would have to its first readers very easily mapped onto the Roman Empire. A lot of those images, they would have been like, oh yeah, I, I know who the dragon is. I know who Babylon is. By the time John is receiving this vision in Patmos, the Roman Empire was pretty active in persecuting Christians. Hence, John's <laughs> exiled on an island of Patmos. So the churches John is writing to would need encouragement in the face of that persecution. Their friends were being killed. There are martyrs for the church already. And so John's vision contrasts two different ways, two different ways to live. There's the way of the dragon, one chasing power using violence, and the way of Christ, who at first shows up as a lion, but then almost immediately transforms into the lamb who was slain. Those are the hymns that we see in Revelation. Not worthy is the lion who, of Judah who will conquer, but worthy is the lamb who was slain. When we give our full allegiance to Jesus, the lamb who was slain, we no longer try to win our battles like Babylon does. We no longer try and use the tools of empire to crush others. Jesus went face to face with the powers and principalities of the world, the evil that was behind the ruthless Romans, and every wicked power that has ever come since, and he defeated them by his death on the cross. Let me put it more forcefully, you cannot claim the power of the cross and refuse to take one up yourself. You cannot claim Jesus' cross for yourself without saying, I am willing to take one up as well. You can't say you follow God and still assume that you can operate with the tools and weapons of the world. You can't actually fight fire with fire, right? We say that, but it's a nonsense phrase. What happens when you fight fire with fire? There's just double the fire. This is, this is what it looks like. You have to fight the weapons of the world with the power of the cross. Paul says that the faith of the Thessalonians was received with power and the Holy Spirit. And the evidence that Paul gives isn't that they were triumphant and had glowing faces. It's that they gave up the transactional relationship they had with the idols, a religion based on your return on investment, and instead they took up the faith of following a crucified Messiah, walking amidst persecution. That's the evidence that they had power in the Holy Spirit. Some of you don't need me to tell you this. Some of you know what it is like to walk the way of the cross. The consequences of your faithful life has meant less income, it's meant tension with friends and family, it's meant you've not been as prosperous, not as popular, you have given up much to follow Jesus. If that is you or if that's how you feel like you are living, let me commend you the way Paul commends the church in Thessalonica. Continue on. Hardship doesn't mean you failed, it might mean you're walking in the way of the cross. And as you walk through that valley, the valley of the shadow of death, your shepherd 
walks with you. Not one who is unfamiliar with suffering, but who knows our weakness and who intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father. But let us be careful that the hardships we face are because we're walking in the way of Jesus, not because we're claiming Jesus and then using the power and tools of the Caesars. Listen to one person's summary of Jesus' answer. The real revolution would not come about through the non-payment of taxes and the resulting violent confrontation. It would be a matter of total obedience to and imitation of Israel's God. This would rule out violent, rev violent revolution, as Matthew 5 makes clear. Jesus was summoning his hearers to the real revolution, which would come about through Israel, reflecting the generous love of God into the whole world. In other words, he was inviting them to follow him in his own royal movement, which was designed to bring in the kingdom in a very different way from that of Judas Maccabeus two centuries earlier, or Judas the Galilean two decades earlier. Jesus' teaching as a whole transcended the popular view of the kingdom, subverting the blasphemous claims of Caesar and the compromises of the temple hierarchy and the dreams of revolutionaries. Listen to that. Jesus subverted the blasphemous claims of Caesar, who wanted the hearts and the obedience of the people. It subverted the compromises of the temple hierarchy, who were willing to give up some of their allegiance for safety and power. It subverted the dreams of revolutionaries who believed that they were called to rise up and use violence to overthrow Rome. To follow Jesus means that we don't try to overpower evil, but overcome evil with good. The kingdom of God is not about trying to gain power over those who would harm us, but to serve those who would harm us, to pray for those who would harm us, to love those who persecute us. The liberty of abundant life that God offers is mysteriously and strangely the way of the cross. Putting God first means we give him our allegiance and out of that, our obedience. It means we have to not only reject the worship of the emperors and the false gods, but refusing to play their game or to use their tools. Let's be clear, the church of Jesus must never be the polite lapdog of any empire, president, governor, or political party. We're called instead to be witnesses to the world to testify that there is an abundant way to live. And that abundant way is to give ourselves fully over to God who loves the world. In doing so, we testify and invite the world to fully give their hearts to God and to walk in the way of Jesus who went toe to toe with the powers of the world and defeated them not through might, but on the cross. This morning, I pray that God captures our hearts so that we can fully devote ourselves to obedience that looks more and more like the way of Jesus. For those of us who feel weary and burdened, may we be encouraged and strengthened. For those of us who have scales over our eyes, may they fall down. May we see the ways that we continue to try and use the tools of the world to win. And instead, may we find ourselves so compelled by the vision of Jesus on his cross, who loves us to the point of death, who defeats the power of the world by being the lamb who was slain, that we walk in the same way. We walk in the same path in the way of the cross and find that it is way more abundant than we could ever ask or imagine. Amen. Amen.